This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman here filling in for Tom this week. If you've been teleworking for the past few years, you may be asking yourself, is that about to change? And if you are wondering that, you're not alone. A recent memo from the White House is creating more questions than answers for federal employees. Federal News Network surveyed close to 5,000 feds on what they think, and one takeaway is clear. Federal employees want telework to continue where it makes sense. Tom and I dug into the survey's results and what OMB's latest guidance actually says. You'll hear Tom first. All right, Drew, you did a pretty big survey here. First of all, how many people responded? We got 4,700 responses, Tom, and that is a huge number. If you compare it to the survey we did last year, around this time last year, we had about 3,000 responses. All right, so give us some of the results. What are people saying here? It is kind of difficult to say across the board that there's one clear takeaway here, but when asked if they if federal employees think that return to office plans will change based on the OMB memo, 40% say yes, they think an increase in in-office work is coming. 20% say no, they don't think things will change very much. And another 40% say they really just don't know. And I think that is kind of the through line here. A lot of people are unsure about what this memo is really going to mean, what their agency leadership is going to do about it, and you know how how soon and when things are going to change here. Yes, that uh, memo, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes, though, is first to understand what it's going to do, you have to be able to decipher it. And that itself, I think, takes a PhD in gobbledygook. Anyway, that's just me saying that. And generally, feds feel how about teleworking? Did the survey show? Federal employees are generally really positive about telework. They think that it makes them more productive. They say it helps them meet agency mission a lot more effectively. And they think that, you know, it shouldn't really be a one-size-fits-all approach to telework. Of course, we know that not every federal employee, not every government agency can have complete telework or complete remote work. But federal employees say that you know, continue using telework where it makes sense. And it's something that they're really largely in favor of. That's something that has been very, very consistent for for years. Right. The people I've spoken with that were not teleworking, that have been teleworking because they had to when the disease came around and has receded, they don't necessarily want 100% telework. They like the option to go to the office, but it seems to be like a three days home tele and two days in the office seems to be kind of what people have settled into and are pretty happy with it. That That is generally the trend. And I think where the concern is coming from is that a lot of federal employees feel that, you know, the ones who feel that telework might be decreasing and in-office work might be increasing in response to the OMB guidance, that makes them concerned and they don't really want to be coming back into the office more often. Of course, that's not everyone. But roughly two-thirds of our survey respondents said that they would consider or would look for a new job if their agency increased in-office work. Right. People say that, but I'm not so sure. And about agency's leadership approach to telework, I mean, that's there is policy setting that has to happen. It's kind of been ad hoc at this point. How do the feds in the survey view their agency's leadership approach? One of our questions asked 
basically on a zero to 100 scale. How does your agency view telework? And they got what I would call a D minus rating. They got a 65 out of 100, just as an average for how agency leaders are looking at telework. And I think that a lot of federal employees, at least in the survey and in the responses, think that you know some agency leaders may be becoming a little bit less telework friendly as time is going on. And that is a a remaining concern for them. And the reason for that is so hard to tell. I mean, the people that are looking that are not leadership often think it's, well, they're just a dinosaur that if you can't count the noses, you can't tell the work is being done. They want to see the heads in the cubicles and et cetera. Maybe a more enlightened view is they just don't know. And they're being held responsible for the output of the agency. And they're unsure of what the effect of telework might be. Although the evidence over the past three years is relative to the three years prior, you really can't tell the difference. That's right. And I think that federal employees, at least according to the survey, again, are saying that productivity is actually increased because of telework. And, you know, that's something that's a view shared by federal employees, a lot of leaders, federal union leaders, and a lot of lawmakers as well, at least on the Democratic side. So, you know, that that is generally the, the viewpoint, at least from the survey results here. And what telework policy do the survey respondents say they think is best? They like it how it is. (laughs) They say that it really shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all approach. It should be based on what is the actual function of your position, what makes sense for you. If you're just going to be going into the office and sitting on Teams calls, sitting in Zoom meetings, I think federal employees generally don't see the value in coming to the office just for that. Sure. Yes, that's right. If so many people are always tele, a certain percentage, let's say, are always telecommuting or teleworking, then wherever you are, you're going to be on Teams, Zoom, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's, it's, I think that's kind of a driving factor here is, you know, it's, again, depends on the function of the position. Sure. And let's get to that Office of Management and Budget memo. It was 19 pages. I cut it and pasted it, because it was a PDF, of course, into Word and found it was more than 7,800 words, all to tell management to update their telework policy. So (laughs) what have you been hearing about it? There has been quite a range of response to the memo, Tom, and I think that generally it's creating more questions than it is answers right now. A lot of federal employees think that, as the survey results show, that telework will decrease. Another half says telework will not decrease. So I think there's just a lot of questions around what it actually says. But if you look into the memo and the actual language of it, it says essentially agency managers should look for ways to increase in-office work while still maintaining the flexibility of telework. So it is a bit of a middle-of-the-road approach. And there was that reference to community needs And I think that was sort of a code for the fact that there's a lot of pressure from state and local level officials, especially in the cities that have large federal presences that are facing high office occupancy rates and harm, in their opinion anyway, to the restaurant business and so on, that feds are somehow under obligation to be in their offices to support the city economies. And a lot of feds are pretty vehement, hey, that's not my job. My job is my job. Right. I think that that pressure is coming down a lot on the Biden administration here. And it's coming from a lot of lawmakers as well. A couple months ago, we saw 
the show up act passed the house and that's one that would if it was enacted would return federal employees to pre-pandemic telework so there is a lot of conversation and talk and concern around this topic something that is making federal employees feel uncertain feel nervous about changes when they are saying that they feel happy where they are sure and you know, I think one driving factor is just the commute in in the city as well. Yes, I think right. I don't think it's the office so much as the commute. As a as I, I have an aversion to commute after forty five years of it. I've had jobs as close as one block from where I was living to you know thirty miles. <laughs> one block beats thirty miles. Let me tell you, a fourteen step staircase in a four bedroom colonial. That's even closer. And you've also been getting hints that what OMB is saying in privately without the memo is we want people back more. That is something I have heard from a couple different sources. Apparently, OMB in the memo says that it is, you know, back and forth and there should be kind of a mix of both. But there are a couple reports that apparently in conversations with agency leadership, maybe they are saying, okay, you know, you should actually bring people back to the office more. Okay. And then there is the in-office people. There are those that like to work in the office, that want to be there, that want to be around the colleagues and the cubes and the coffee. Hey, a new expression, C-cubed, coffee, colleagues, and cubicles. They have ideas on what might make in-office itself more pleasant or productive. There were a couple of different ideas thrown around from the survey respondents. They talked about collaborative meetings. So sometimes in-person meetings can be beneficial when you're talking with a whole team. They also talked about flexibility with work hours. But really, the biggest takeaway here is that when asked, federal employees said actually nothing would make in-office work more productive or more pleasant. A lot of people are saying, no, I just want to continue teleworking and just continue how things have been going. <laughs> Keep your foosball table, right? Exactly. <laughs> and your cafe latte maker. All right, so what comes next? Agencies have to do this analysis because at the end of this memo, there were a lot of deadlines going out to 150 days. Yep, there's a lot of deadlines. The first one coming up is just a couple of weeks away, about mid-May. We'll see agencies submit their initial work environment plans. These are going to look at different factors or ways to measure the productivity of an agency. And after that, we'll see them present those plans to OMB throughout the summer. And it's going to be a an ongoing change, ongoing updates as as they measure changes in productivity. And listen, OMB doesn't know all the data, so you can always make it up to support what it is you want to do with your agency. Not advising that, but I think it's a strategy a few people might take. That's Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, the Supreme Court looks just about ready to help out false claims whistleblowers. I'm Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. The Supreme Court right now is considering a case that could boost federal whistleblowers who bring forth wrongdoing by contractors under the False Claims Act. 
The case underscores the importance of intent and its relevance in these types of cases. For details and why it's a landmark case, Federal Drive host Tom Temin spoke to noted D.C. whistleblower attorney Steve Cohn. So it's the super value case, and they're looking at what type of proof you need to show fraud. And the corporations, the Chamber of Commerce and the companies, were arguing that if you could come up with a plausible legal argument, even after the fact that they didn't knowingly commit fraud, they could escape liability. So let me put it to a more understandable way and why I believe the Supreme Court will completely reject these arguments. Somebody believes they're defrauding the government. You have actual evidence of their intent to defraud the government. In fact, they did defraud the government. But somewhere along the line, a company can argue that they should be let off the hook because there was a plausible argument that they weren't defrauding the government. So what they were saying was subjective evidence, in other words, evidence of the actual people ripping off the taxpayer, evidence of their intent to rip off the taxpayer could be ignored if the company came up with a rationalization that it was ambiguous whether fraud was occurring. Well, what would constitute evidence that they intended to commit fraud? Say an email saying, hey, we're going to really stick it to them, but just don't tell the accountants. That kind of thing? Exactly. So in the case they were charging, the drug company was charging normal people, just anyone coming off the street, $4 for a drug. But they were charging the government $20 for the same drug. So if the federal agent just walked in and bought it off the shelf, they'd save the taxpayer $16. So there were discussions while this was occurring where the salespeople understood that they were you know, overcharging the government. But once they got caught, once the whistleblower turned them in with evidence of their knowledge, the company said, you know, we think the regulations were ambiguous at the time. And we think you could have plausibly argued that you could have charged people $20 for the prescription as opposed to 4 Sure, but the people Low, that were blowing the... lower the, court threw the case out. They threw the whistleblower case out. But did the whistleblower in that case have the objective evidence of intent there in that case? Well, they had the evidence that the people who were overcharging the government suspected or knew they were overcharging the government. And in fact, they were overcharging the government. You can't have a False Claims Act case, no matter what evidence you have. I mean, you could have a thousand emails about someone trying to steal money from the government, but if it's at the end of the day, there was no false claim being submitted, there'd be no liability. You need damage. So in this particular case, they were overcharging the government. The people involved at the time either knew or clearly suspected that they were, because the False Claims Act has a standard for reckless 
disregard. Sure. So if you kind of know what you're doing is wrong, but you disregard all the evidence that what you're doing is wrong, you're supposed to be found guilty. They have a reckless disregard standard. They have a willful ignorance standard. Whereas if you put your head in the sand and just ignore all the evidence that you're committing fraud, you can still be found guilty. So the lower courts had completely turned this on its head. And were essentially, as the dissent in the lower court said, they're just giving crafty lawyers the ability to permit literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of ripoffs to the government. And we're speaking with the non-crafty Stephen Cohn, founding partner of <laughs> Cohn, Cohn, and Colapinto. And there are cases that have come up over the years, especially in federal pricing false claims acts, where, say, you had promised the lowest possible price in a GSA contract. And it really was administrative inadvertence, where a price was higher than perhaps another customer was getting, even another federal customer was getting. But that was the price originally negotiated on the GSA schedule. We're not talking about a case like that then, correct? Exactly. In order to have the liability under false claims, you need to show some form of knowledge and intent. So when they wrote the statute, it was either direct knowledge, you know, email, we're ripping off the government, willful ignorance, which was really designed for whistleblowers. A whistleblower comes forward to the company, presents evidence of fraud, and the company willfully ignores that evidence. Essentially, it's a way to empower internal compliance programs. If an employee goes to the compliance program with the evidence of the fraud, the company better take a serious look at it. And the third way is reckless disregard, meaning the evidence is in front of you and you choose to ignore it. So you have to have that. If it's a simple mistake, there's no liability. And the False Claims Act is not a negligence law. If you make a mistake, if you didn't really understand, but as the dissent to the lower court, you know, the court that went up on appeal said that the federal courts, quote, cannot tolerate deception. So if you have evidence that the company was engaged in deception, you have to find liability. I attended the oral argument, and we did file, you know, an amicus brief in the case. We studied it carefully. The judges were like, they were essentially saying this is a simple case. It's like, yeah, if you have evidence of deception, you can't ignore it. But what's really troubling is how were these arguments even raised? You know, how could the Chamber of Commerce legitimately come before the court and say you should ignore evidence of deception in a fraud case. That has never happened before. I mean, you can't do that. It sounds like those sirens weren't for you. Maybe they're headed to the Chamber of Commerce or something <laughs> on that case. But just a practical question. Suppose there is a clerk or a cost accountant or a billing clerk, and they are charging $20 to the government and $4 to the walk-in or the subscription drug recipient, whatever the case might be, and they don't know any better. Is that person in trouble, or is it just the person that gave them the fraudulent price list the one in trouble? And I guess the corporate officers would be part of it also. Okay, you just follow up the chain. So if the person at the lowest level 
is simply following the instructions, they're not going to be in trouble. If they're making a mistake, they're not going to be in trouble. But then you have to go to the knowledge of the person who created the instructions. Now, if they created those instructions in good faith, relying upon the regulations, they're not going to be in trouble, even if it's wrong. But if at the time they were drafting those regulations, a whistleblower inside the company stepped forward and said, you are deceiving the government, you know, and explained why, with plausible reasons, you know, why they were deceiving the government, that drafter, the company, would either have to address those issues or face potential liability if it turns out the whistleblower was correct. In that situation, you're in a case of either willful ignorance, they're just going to ignore the bad side, or reckless disregard for the law. Now, you can take it one step further, which is actual knowledge. The person who's drafting the regulations had actual knowledge that they were doing an act of deception. But the False Claims Act covers reckless disregard, willful ignorance, and actual knowledge. So what's significant here, what came out in the court argument, when you're dealing with the government, you have certain legal and ethical responsibilities. It's not like you're a salesperson hustling up the best price you can get, you know, selling a used car. That's not the deal. There are rules for doing government contracting. There are rules if you're taking money literally from all of the people of the United States, all of the taxpayers, you're taking that money, you're under certain ethical and legal rules. One of those is you can't ignore the bad facts. And just a quick question, when will we likely hear a decision from the Supreme Court? This decision will be issued sometime probably in June before the court exits for the year. It seemed from the argument that most of the justices were going to overturn the lower court. And this is something else that's very important. The False Claims Act is the most effective anti-fraud law in the United States. It's recovered over $70 billion cash from fraudsters, not theoretical liabilities or judgments that were never collected, actual $70 billion. And the best estimate for the deterrent value, in other words, companies acting honestly because they're afraid of getting caught, is at least $700 billion, 10 times the amount. So the law has been super effective. And I think the justices understood that. They understood that by lowering all these standards and making it way harder to prove the fraud would really hurt the federal treasury and all honest taxpayers. That was Steve Cohn, partner at law firm Cohn, Cohn and Colapinto, speaking with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. And that's it for this week's FedLife. As always, let us know what you'd like us to cover. Tom Temin will be back next week. Until then, I'm Drew Friedman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.